Episode 31 with curator and social activist Kimberly Drew. Welcome to the Institute of Black Imagination. I'm your host, Dario Kalmis, an artist, writer, brand consultant, and generally curious fellow. And each week we bring you a conversation from the pool of black genius to inspire, engage, and help you unleash your own imagination. Today's episode is with art curator, writer, and social activist, Kimberly Drew. Hailing from Orange, New Jersey, and born into a family of creatives, Kimberly was taught to trust her own voice at an early age, a lesson that proved fortuitous in her future career in the arts. Her words and voice have served to shape a new canon of Black contemporary art and forces us to question who and what is worthy of being valued in our nation's most lauded museums. It was in one such museum, the Studio Museum in Harlem, where Kimberly got her start as an intern with its formidable chief curator, Thelma Golden, back in 2010. And just one year later, Kimberly's Tumblr blog on Black art and culture grabbed the world's attention. Her keen eye for cultivating a digital presence landed her a position as the social media manager at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, which she left in 2018 to pursue other creative opportunities. And yet, here we are, all still watching and listening as Kimberly leads us through a world of art, culture, justice, and a smattering of fashion, for good measure. A brilliant writer and activist, Kimberly says everything with her chest and gives us all permission to show up messy, vulnerable, and without all of the answers. Black Futures, an archive of collective memory and exuberant testimony, was released by Penguin Random House in 2020, co-edited by Drew and her colleague, journalist Jenny Wortham. In today's conversation, Kimberly shares how she cultivates community through art, what she's learned about the vulnerability to be found in rage, and why she's able to speak her truth with such determined power. It's a conversation that gave me permission to be messy in my own process. If you enjoy this content, be sure to hit that subscribe button, shout us out over on Instagram and Twitter at Black Imagination, and have you left us a review on Apple Podcast yet? You know, we would love to hear from you. So, grab some popcorn and get ready to dive into a wide-ranging and deeply informative conversation with my friend and sister, Kimberly Drew. Kimberly Drew, thank you so much for hopping on to the Institute of Black Imagination podcast. I am super excited to just like to just dive in, to like dive into like who you are, who you want to be, who you've been, um, and just the practice, the practice of being alive um, and showing up, you know, consistently. And even in my research, seeing how aligned our ethos, our different, our our. Ge- our ethoses, our ethosi, our ethosi, um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) are, which is really this discovery and presentation of black imagination and genius that has been, I think, denied, uh, that was denied yourself, 
that was denied you, that was denied myself growing up in the Midwest, um, and what I considered Wait, to be- where'd a, you grow up? St. Louis, Missouri. <gasps> oh, I love that. My family's from Boonsville. What's that? <laughs> it's like the ruralist of the rural in Missouri. Wow, wow, wow. Your family, like your father's, right? Your father's from Missouri. Yeah, my dad's, so my dad's dad. My dad and I actually grew up on the same street in New Jersey because they came from Missouri to New Jersey for family reasons, I think. Uh-huh. Um, but my mom is from Ohio. My dad's side of family is from Missouri. So it's very Midwest over here, even though I'm like a full Jersey broad. Wow. So do you carry that Midwestern optimism? <laughs> no. Yes. So <laughs> I would, I feel like optimism in like the most broad sense, right? Like I was doing this incredible conversation with Denzel Porteus, who is, um, who works at Stonewall Columbus in Ohio. And we were talking about the incredible work that he does. He also does a, um, this like queer oriented VC fundraising to support queer owned businesses, black, you know, amazing person and newly a dad and just like such a tender human. Um, but thinking about Ohio and thinking about the great migration, of course, and thinking about black radical organizing in the Midwest. And so optimistic in that sense, you know, like you have to be optimistic to do movement work. I don't believe in, you know, pessimistic leaders in movement necessarily, or not, not believe in them. I believe they exist, but that's not my tea basically. Um, and so in the sense of, of understanding that there is a better world, yes, I have Midwest optimism, but because I also am like a generation off, I don't exactly know what, you know, your relationship to optimism in the Midwest is. But for me, I just think about, you know, picking up your life, traveling thousands of miles with a lack of surety. That's like a powerful brand of optimism that I definitely feel Mm. inspired by. Mm. Yeah. And for me, it was really also like um, a naivete about Mm. the world. There's something about being in the Midwest that you're really sold this idea of, of innocence and like a bucolic life that mm-hmm. East coast living completely just strips you of mm-hmm. <laughs> and, confront, and confronts you with, uh, you know, like coming to New York and really being green man, really being green um, and seeing that the world was not that 1950s, like American white picket fence kind of dream that at least was sold to Mm. my family and Mm. what many of my neighbors tried to at least enact. You know, I didn't know what was going on behind closed doors, but Mm -hmm. it was something that was definitely sold. And to be confronted with that, you know, quite quickly in New York was something that um, was really quite powerful. But speaking of origins, like, let's get into your origins. Like, who is Kimberly Drew? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, A brief history. Yeah, a brief history. Um, I mean, it's not brief. It's like a very multivalent kind of thing. Like, I think the simplest way, I mean, it's nice to talk about parents and family because I feel in this moment, like closer to my parents than I have in a really long time. Um, Because I grew up in New Jersey, as I was saying, I grew up on Sterling Avenue, literally a block away from the house that my father was raised in. and went to the elementary school that my father went to. And so it was really amazing to have that kind of like, like I feel very grounded in a sense of home, which I feel like is obviously complicated for many black Americans. Um, 
but even being able to trace, you know, a few generations of my family back in New Jersey, like there's photos that my dad has been sharing with me more and more of just like family members who are like owning businesses in Newark and like maybe the 1940s. Like, so just thinking about these lineages um, is something that I feel really inspired and grounded in. Um, but a lot of that comes from having grown up in New Jersey and then leaving to go to boarding school at 13 and then going to college and then um, coming back from college and moving directly to New York. And so I've been away from home for a really long time, but I think being in this pandemic context and having the great fortune and privilege of being so close to my parents, um, just being able to really cash in on that um, and pay forward on that um, has been really inspiring to me um, because I feel so tenderly for so many of my friends who like are from the Bay or from the Midwest and um, because of COVID and our interest in safety and protection of each other have, you know, had to be in some ways like physically estranged from their loved ones. Yeah, I actually um, have not seen my parents since Christmas of 2019, wow. which is kind of insane, mm-hmm. kind of insane. Um, but, you know, growing up in New Jersey and like you know, this history, even like with your father, um, you know, and going to the same school that he went to, like, I think the way in which you move about the world has such a strong tie to community. Mm-hmm. Like, when did that begin? And what was the community that you grew up that engendered that awareness? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and something I never really get to talk about, because I feel like especially too, like I was just reading, I was going to tell you, um, I've been um, sticking my teeth into Toronto Burke's You Are Your Best Thing anthology, which just came out. Um, and I can't plug it enough. Like it's, it's one of those texts that like, I think for so many of, especially my network, I feel like a lot of the beautiful black queers who are like doing well right now, we're like, we just need simple language. And I think that this book really thrives in its simplicity um, because I feel like there's something here that I also saw when I was reading Citizen for the first time, Claudia Rankin, um, just sometimes you need things said plain. And uh, I've been thinking a lot about vulnerability and thinking a lot about um, community as you were talking about. And at any rate, my, my relationship to community is like my whole entire ethos. Like my parents were both raised in community models um my just to keep talking about my dad but in relationship to new jersey my father was like the youngest of his family there's a 10-year gap between him and his elder his elder sister and so my dad was definitely a kid of kids um because he wasn't as connected to his siblings and one of his best friends um david his mom, Joan really like took an instrumental role in my dad's life. And Joan then a generation later also took a really instrumental role in my life. Um, And it was one of her good friends, Marge, whose house we lived in when I was growing up. Um, And so for me, it's always about really thinking about others and not necessarily in like, um, what's the word, like a transactional nature. Um, but more of a a general kind of understanding that there is, like, I I think that there's a failure and a success that is lonely. 
you know, it's really like, if you're looking to your left and your right and your community isn't doing well, are you truly doing well? Um, and for me, that's always been like, I just don't like knowing things alone. I don't like having things alone. Um, and so for me, community is, is just about everything. And every part of my existence is based on someone helping me, someone helping my parents or vice versa. Yeah, I, I, I love that. And you, you spoke briefly earlier about, um, you know, transitioning to boarding school when you were 13. So this, I, like, I think from your book was like a self-described, like elite boarding school, right? This is like St. George's school, like where like the Astors went right in Rhode Island. Um, how did that shape um, or how did that shift your perception of like community and the world and then how did that shape the way in which you view the world like looking forward like now looking back mm. I mean I appreciated the opportunity to be in a community that was not my own and was not oriented towards my success because I think it's such a valuable lesson and we don't talk enough about it like there's a lot to be said um through books like Black Ice or Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together at the Lunch Table um, or in the lived experiences of folks or through documentaries like Prep School Negro. Um, there's something to be said about resilience in those spaces because I learned that community is not something to be falsified. You know, it's like I had so many classmates who would remind me of how their parents were paying for my education. And it's just like, well, one, no, they're not. <laughs> And, and, and second of all, it's just good. I think it's like a very, almost like friends who are from the South talk about this, where they're like, they prefer the South sometimes because people will just call you what they want to call you to their, to your face, as opposed to the North where people like try to pretend like they're liberal. And I had the unique experience of being in middle school in Rhode Island, where no one had a problem telling me that I was less than them. And it was great. I was just like, okay, cool. Like I know my position in the world. I understand who I am to you or who I am not to you. And so I will move and operate with not humility in a sense of smallness, but humility in a sense of just like reality. Like nothing is, nothing is mine, you know, nothing is inherently mine and moving away from and, and then also it's like helpful because it's, it's such a capitalist kind of prospect to think that like the world owes you shit. Um, and so I appreciate it in some ways. And of course it's all cloaked trauma, 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 but I just knew I was like, okay, cute. I am a black woman and y'all don't give a fuck about me. And so I'm going to do my best to care for the students of color who come after me. I'm going to do my best to survive this environment. And especially in you know, this contemporary world, I, was, I felt so much more prepared than some of my other people in my life for like a Trump America, because I was like, I went to middle school with the people. I mean, I went to high school with the people who voted for this person. So none of this shit is surprising to me. If anything, it's surprising to me that people are so willing to get behind someone who is, anti-intellectual that was the thing that really threw me for a loop because I love a conservative intellectual which is so problematic to say out loud but I believe so much in context of conservatism when it's oriented towards autonomy right it's like 
I believe my life and values should be this way. I can get behind that. But then when it's like, I'm going to infringe upon your rights, that's when I have a problem. And seeing people get behind that was like a little jarring, still jarring. Jarring is not a big enough word, but you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. Like, and what, what about conservative intellectualism that you love? Like what, what about, what, um, Lord Jesus, where are my words? What about conservative intellectualism you love? Like what, what, what does that give you? I think I just, being a, a person of people, I'm very invested in finding ways to understand others, you know, not as a way of privileging it as any other better way of life, but I would just so much rather know who's in a room than not. And so for me, having traveled to, you know, really conservative parts of the world, for example, I'm so thrilled by the opportunity to learn and adapt and translate. And so I say that I respect conservative values in that way of like, yeah, like if this is the way that you live and you want that to be upheld and respected, that's amazing to me. And I'd really love to learn that. And I'd also like the opportunity to share to you how I want to live my life, you know, what my core values are. Um, but I don't think that you can be a re fully realized human without allowing those relationships to inform you. If that makes sense. Yeah, no, it makes total sense. And it, it, it kind of zeroes in on something that I think about a lot. And I thought about a lot, um, you know, with this past election and like this current political climate, like, because me personally, I'm, I'm right there with you. I love to hear the other side, right? Because not only do I want to know like what I'm, what I'm up against, but I also am really just curious about people in general. And I'm also of the belief that this doesn't have to be a zero sum game. Like this doesn't have to be a win lose. Like I think in the act of listening in the act of sharing lived experience, we can co-create like the third thing, right? We can actually co-create the solution. But one thing that, you know, and I don't even know if you have an answer to this, but like, I just wonder where are the conservatives that are open to listening to the liberal side of it? Right. You know, I find that we um, in many ways hold space for, uh, you know, for another's lived experience. But on the other side, there just is no there is just a hard line. Like, yeah. how, how do we cross that gap? Because it, it does have to be an exchange. Yeah. I mean, I think that just acknowledging that all these things are individual, like every single, you know, no election is won by one vote. Right. And so there was these. I mean, and especially talking about the Midwest, like it was so disheartening, especially after the 2016 election for to hear so many people railing against the Midwest. Cause I'm like, one, like, you're not talking about my auntie. Like, I know you're not talking about my auntie, you know? Um, because my auntie is an upstanding human and, you know, is such a woman of the world. But you wanna talk about how like, you know, using these really pejorative, insulting, ableist terms to talk about an entire region of the United States is so wild to me. Um, but for me, I think about individuals and, and, and that is the thing that like, I think unleashes some of the like bubbling of rage because I just have to understand that like, I can only 
control myself and my actions. I can only educate myself and inform myself and I can do my best to care for my community, but to change others is not really something that like, I think is the best use of our time. Um, but I will say one thing that was interesting to me, and this is not in any way to overly privilege, but there's all of these, there's like hundreds of bills that are moving right now at state legislators um, that are designed really to um, eviscerate, eliminate, exterminate transness. And they're targeting young people. They're denying young people access to healthcare. They're in some states oriented towards taking trans kids away from family structures that are affirming of their gender identity and affirming of their care, right? And we see these bills moving with such ferocity. Um, but one of the things that was like a slight glimmer, not to overprivilege it, but there was this um, op-ed written by Asa Hutchinson, um, who is a conservative leader, who was just saying like, as the GOP, this is against the very gristle of our ideologies. Why is the state coming in to regulate what is happening in the home? That's not the base of what conservative values means. And those types of things are interesting to me, you know, where it's like, yeah, this is in direct contrast to how you are developing and understanding your political position in the world. And so those types of things, I'm like, okay, these things can be really like informative kind of stance because when we allow certain swaths of people to be associated with like a righteousness, a moral absolute, or, you know, preconceived notions of hate or otherwise, we actually lose a lot, right? And so it's like, what do your words mean? What are you actually trying to say? Like, if you are truly a conservative Republican, you believe in small government. So say it with your chest. Don't be going into like the work of what doctors do and, you know, denying what every single pediatrician in these United States says about gender affirming care. Why would you do that? Right. And so those kinds of things are interesting to me um, because it, it feels almost like just a sliver of maybe hope. But not exactly hope. I'm not a hopeful person. Definitely optimistic. Oh, <laughs> Ooh, you said a couple of things um, that I want to circle back to. First of all, you mentioned uh, rage, um, which I find really interesting. How do you how do you navigate rage, your own rage, um, and how do you work through it? I love a Scorpio asking about rage. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, okay <laughs> what's also valuable so like my 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 mom is like a self-proclaimed libra but she's definitely a scorpio she's october 21st and or 25th which is complicated um and then my dad's an aries straight up and so like rage is just it's such a principal part of how i understand the world um born by fire you know what i mean and so for me, I, I think rage is really something to be considered. Um, I think it's something that is often denied, especially to black women, um, because we are consistently having to work against stereotypes and archetypes of angry black woman kind of characters. Um, I've been called sassy more times than I can count. Um, 
but I also, as, as I'm becoming a more like enlightened adult, understand like, oh, that is what makes me dangerous. Um, my awareness and my refusal um, is one of the things that I think has scared every educator I've ever had. Um, and so I'm trying to, I think, really craft my relationship to it. Um, but every day I, I wake up angry, <laughs> like every day I wake up with rage and um, I find it to be one of the more, like one of the things I love the most about myself is that I can sit with my rage as an adult in a way that I don't think I was able to access when I was younger. And what do you do with that rage? Like uh, how does, what does it fuel? Mm. Well, I don't try to think about it as fuel. Like that's where I'm at right now. Um, I've been thinking a lot about how rage and vulnerability are really like tied together. Um, because I think to an extent we're taught that vulnerability is about softness um, and maybe even like kindness where I think that it can be so vulnerable to show rage because like any other extreme emotion to put that on display makes you very vulnerable. And so for me, I think I'm trying to remove notions of productivity from rage um, because I think that that is a recipe for burnout. Mm. I, 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 I love, first of all, the way in which you just interrogate the ways in which we've been conditioned to think about emotion and like processing, right? Um, and the ways in which you invoke language to create new frameworks in which to just exist, right? Exist in like the human experience. Um, but another thing I wanted to circle back to was this notion of, you know, you said speak it with your chest, right? Like if you're a conservative, just like say, it's like stake your claim. And what I come to realize or something that I'm aware of is what people say and what they do. And I think even in that, there is a value that we have been conditioned to put on uh, those two things lining up and then having an emotional reaction when they don't. And I'm of the belief that we've generally just been sold a bill of goods around it, right? And the ways in which identity can obfuscate, obfuscate um, motive Right. So like this um, identity of conservatism and GOP, whatever. Um, but they're not conservative, actually. They're doing something quite different. It's the same way that, you know, you can go to church on a Sunday and hang somebody from a tree that afternoon. Do you know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. there's you know, a label is just that. It is as two-dimensional a surface as any icon on your computer screen. But the icon is just a substitute for so many things that are happening underneath the surface. It actually doesn't even relate, to be mm -hmm. honest. Mm -hmm. And I think in many ways we are reacting to and living in a world of, of icons um, and not, I mean, we could talk about celebrity, that's one thing, but like icons, you know, 
as it relates to, you know, just chimeras, these very two flat dimensional shadows um, that people project as as a real identity when behind the scenes they're moving in much more um, malicious um, and oh, I don't want to say this word, but deleterious ways. Like, I don't want to like, I don't want to pop off more than three syllables, but that was just what, what came to mind. But anyway, getting back to your origins. So you grew up in New Jersey, really amazing community. You go off to uh, St. George uh, for high school, and then you end up at Smith College, which you know, in your book, you said was a challenge to begin. Like, what was that challenge like? And and could you explain it to us? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I want to just circle back to what you were saying, too, because <laughs> I've gotten into this with Kirby, actually. Oh, let's get into it. Because we were talking over text once, and I'm sure he would actually like blacklist me for mentioning something we texted about. But I was like, hey, like, because I sent him um, see murders down for my niggas because it's just my favorite song. Like it's just period. It's just an incredible song. And I think it was around, there was some sort of like, I think there was like a Tom Ford drama that happened or something. Like it was some CFDA something. This is years ago. Um, and I was also like, Hey, also personally, I would love to have more Pierre Moss, but I can't fit anything that you make. And just, having that conversation and just like, it's like you espouse this investment in black culture, but also the samples don't really recognize and fit the multiplicity of our people. And so like, what's really good. And he, he heard it, you know, and then like those kinds of things are interesting to me. And it's so amazing to see now, especially like the imagery of the brand in general, just like shifting and changing. And it makes me so proud to see because I know it's hard work and I know that there's a million reasons why those limitations happen, whether that's cost effectiveness or, you know, industry, you know, whatever's, but it's, it's been so interesting just to be like, okay, it didn't happen as quickly as I wanted it to, you know, which I feel like is a part of like a liberal kind of mindset sometimes is that we're like, well, I said this was like disenfranchising. So why would you not fix it if you want to be like a good person? And it's like, well, there's systems and structures in place that have to be considered worked around and eventually abolished, but there's so many steps to that. Um, but it's just this interesting thing. Cause in the moment I was like, this nigga is pandering to me. <laughs> and I was just like, no, I can't deal. And then seeing this like evolution and growth and seeing these collaborations and seeing, you know, even the work through photography and imagery that is happening you know, in Black Futures, we have some of the beautiful images that y'all created because it's like, okay, this is this is the thing that I think so many of us were craving. Um, but I only mentioned that example just to say it's like these things take time too. Um, you know, the 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 walking of the talk or the you know rollout of the talk takes time and investment and trust. Um, and so I feel like that for me is always an interesting to, thing too whenever having these kind of conversations because it's just not simple. And I think in many cases, the higher stakes, the work that we do, the easier it is for people to criticize us or to hold us to a certain standard. Um, but sometimes too, it means handholding. Sometimes too, it means like, I'm just gonna keep caring for you even though you're not perfect, but I love you all the same. And we don't have to talk every day. 
Um, and you don't have to do every single thing that always meets my standard of, of good or excellent. But to see key changes happen is so valuable to me personally, because I feel like that's truly what it means to be in community with somebody. Um, and not just for the sake of like, oh, what you did was cool, but really just like, wow, what you did was so profoundly important because it is a, a benchmark for your growth. And that's what I care about. Like, not that you listened to what I said, but that you are maybe orienting towards a more multiplicitous kind of way of being in the world and an awareness of, I don't know, like the broadness and stretches of what the world can offer. Um, so those kinds of things are always on my mind, um, especially for like those of us who are more visible. It's just like, especially like really, really talking about black imagination. I feel like those things really have to be nurtured. Um, and yeah, like, I don't know. Those are, those, those are the things that like keep me up at night. Um, but I think that working on black futures, especially as a book project, it just taught me so much more about not just celebrating, but really having like some real, 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 real patience and some real, real love for our folks, which I don't think that any of us are ever going to receive enough of. Um, and yeah. Yeah, I mean, I asked, I asked, I asked you about like Smith College, and we can come back to that, girl. I have this list of questions, but the conversation—I'm <laughs> just gonna roll with the conversation because yeah. that's just where we are. Um, yeah. You know, with 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 Kirby and like what you what you said about like hitting him up um, it makes me think of two things. But first, it makes me think about like what happened with the editor in chief of like Teen Vogue you know, and other, um, other folk who have been quote unquote canceled, right? This idea of like cancel culture. And I'm just really, I'm really at a loss on how to create more space for uh, nuanced conversation, um, for allowing for someone, for for our reaction to someone's quote unquote transgression, not to be the end of that story, but the beginning of a dialogue. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? And I think that's mm -hmm. what that was an example of, right? With, with Kirby. Um, but I also think his reaction to that, even in time, showed who he was and what he stood for. You know, and and when we spoke about earlier, you know, like conservatives kind of hiding behind this cloak of conservatism when actually that's not what they're about, um, their reactions to our reaction to the injustice shows us who they are. Right. That um, that you sacrifice 20 kids in Connecticut and even in national outrage, public outrage, you still chose to do nothing. And, you know, I think, I think it's about, you know, speaking up. Um, and like you said, like patience and just seeing, seeing what happens, right? Like seeing, seeing where we go and people will tell you exactly who they are. Um, but, you know, also speaking about vulnerability, I think Kirby, and I think 
interestingly enough, I think vulnerability is actually one of his superpowers. Um, because he, I have seen him consistently put himself on the line, um, and not really know how the chips would fall. But he, even in his, even in his rage, right? You spoke about rage, like you know that Black Lives Matter show that we did in 2015. Really, um, really stuck his neck out there, um, and I think in that act of vulnerability. Um, couched in rage Kirby found that I can't speak for Kirby but what I witnessed was him finding that the real secret sauce was in himself and even more so in his community Mm -hmm. and the more that he embraced that community the more authentic uh, the more inclusive um, the more I don't want to say benevolent. I mean, I'm trying to think about a a word that means like love and action. And so Mm -hmm. benevolence is what comes out, but the more benevolent um, the brand became, but you even reaching out to him and saying that, like, you know, I think it's something that's also really consistent with your practice, which is, um, you know, speaking truth to power, um, speaking your truth in places of power, um, even your, uh, social media handle like Museum Mammy, like it is a provocation, like from the jump, and th- and this was pre right Black Lives Matter seventy eight. Like you, you were about this work, you've been about this work for a very long time. How did you find your voice? Mm-hmm. Um, I think I mean I was raised with a voice, you know, like just to circle back to family and everything is like one of the benefits of being raised by the parents that I feel so lucky every day to have is that they, you know, really taught me to choose my words um, because I was a very chatty child, as you could imagine. Um, And my parents were both just like, just be very considered with your words, don't waste them. Um, And then also I was really hurt because I'm an only child as well. And so being, I think being socialized as a black woman as an only child was such a unique experience because even if I had had like another sibling who was socialized male, like the orientation of the family dynamic would be completely different. Um, but for me, I've never really felt, I don't think that there's anything that could actually quiet me as bold of a statement as that is. And I'm like, is that true? But it does feel true um, because the foundations are so firm that. I'm also just like, okay, cool. Like if it's not the words that you hear, it's going to be the actions, you know, like one of my greatest pride points in my career is that like, I know if I am killed tomorrow in the next 20 minutes, that there's a generation of young people who know they can be in the arts because of the work that I've done. And there's no, there's nothing, there's nothing that anyone can do to take that away. That's mine. (laughs) That is very true. Like, um, you know, you, 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 I think you have, um, and this isn't to like, uh, blow smoke up your ass, but I think that you have actually like single-handedly really shifted culture. You really are what people would call an influencer, right? Like you are 
doing that work both for you know queer communities um, in the space of art, um, in the space of access, um, and differently abled bodies. Um, you know, even even with Instagram, I think you were one of the first persons that I came across who were captioning their photos, right? Like when did, like when did this idea uh, or concept of access really come to the fore for you? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think for me, and I felt, and just on a note of language, like some people prefer disabled um, as opposed to differently abled, but I also don't want to speak for everybody. Um, But I think for me, you know, the only reason that I can say anything with bravado is because I know that I'm a work in progress, right? Like I think oftentimes like that's one of the things like not to circle back to Kirby, but I'm like obsessed. And because you guys are so close, I have to also say it, but like, I just love what is the, what is read as bravado in him, which I don't really read as bravado, you know, like I think Solange gets the same rap where people are like, Oh, these arrogant. And it's like, there's not, I mean, there is, and we can be, all of us can be arrogant and ignorant. And we, I think we reserve that. Like when you are people who could be murdered in the next 20 minutes, like is arrogance the worst thing in the world? Um, but for me, I'm not like a, I'm an, I'm an ego-based person. I'm a Leo. It would be a lie to say I wasn't. Um, but to be able to say something with bravado is because I understand that I'm doing the work on myself. And so for me, my relationship to disability justice is really lens through people who have taken the time to educate me um, interpersonally or folks who are doing incredible writing like Carolyn Lazard or Alice Shepard uh, Saray Johnson, who have, have made their work available to those who are curious about how to live in a way that is more oriented, um, to, I guess, a multiplicity. Like, I think the thing that I love the most about disability justice movements is the slowness of it and the imperfections of it. Um, because I think we are through a lot of programming really, especially as black folks, expected to assimilate and to ascend through very particular lenses. And there is a messiness inherent in disability justice that I just feel so much freer in, you know? It's not the exact right word because there is no right exact word for everyone. Um, It's not the exact right posture because there is no right exact posture for everyone. There is always translation there is always consideration there is always accommodation or the project is a failure and that to me is like so delicious and delightful and so it really started during a conversation that I had with Christine Sun Kim who's an incredible artist in my life um amazing mom amazing organizer and such a beacon I think for so many people um who you know, are living with disabilities or, you know, confronting their own relationship to disability. I did a talk with her, I think in 2015, um, that shifted the course of the rest of the work that I've done since. Um, and then every day I'm informed by, like I said, Carolyn Lazar or Alice Shepard or Alice Wong, who wrote this incredible, or kind of constructed, let's say this incredible anthology called Disability Visibility, but also does podcasting and does writing and, and has an incredible relationship to the art world. Um, and so, for me, I'm just like, as a person who loves information and loves people, it's the perfect intersection. Um, 
Yeah. I could go on and on and on about it, but like, for me, I'm just like, wow, this is actually true liberation um, because it's not towards an absolute. And I think that there's something that's really lost in conversations around utopia um, because it, it makes it seem that like there could be freedom that is almost like sterile for all of us. Like, and that's mm. just not fucking true. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I love, I love your mention of the messiness of the process. And it's interesting because even when I think about um, many life processes, um, even just birth, right? Like the literal introduction of a new consciousness um, onto this planet, not smooth, <laughs> not clean, mm-hmm. you know, it's and not even uh, right. Because you have like <laughs> the fact that especially for black folks who, you know, have re- reproductive organs are three times more likely to die. Yeah. So it's like, you're already just like, there's no, you know, equal mm-hmm, mm-hmm, if we mm-hmm. really want to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so why would there be this assumption that we can orient towards like some sort of peaceful freedom? There's no, there's just, it doesn't make no damn sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, but, but, you know, I, I, I wish that was preached more because even, even in you speaking it, it gave me personal permission, right. To not be right. Right. Like, I think that's something, I, I don't know how type A you are, but like, amongst those of us who are like recovering perfectionists, like, thank you for that, like permission. But I think that that's something that we can extend to many people and, and, and that we as a culture can hold space for that, that, that all is an undulation, right? Like nothing is linear. We are moving forward and slightly back and, you know, slightly sideways um, in this process of becoming what we are to be whatever the fuck that is, mm-hmm. you know, like whatever that is. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, so, so, so thank you for that. But like, I want to, I want to kind of track this progression because I really want to get to um, art and your introduction into um, the art space. Um, so, you know, you, you, you go to St. George's, you go to Smith college, you do an internship uh, at the studio museum of Harlem. Um, and in Harlem, baby. In Harlem, one twenty fifth. Important. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you encountered something, right? You encountered some artists, some names that you hadn't even heard of before. Like, what was that experience? What happened? Could you relay that for us? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I think it's interesting what you were saying about being a Type A person because I am not. Like, I am so not, and I don't know. I don't know why I'm not. It would it would presume that I am. I am not. I'm a messy bitch. Um, I'm a I'm a messy bitch who likes nice things, um, and I like for things to be nice. <laughs> but that's I I don't think I'm type A um, in any way. And it's and it's in in many ways like freed me from a lot of shit. Like I think about if I was type A with within the structures that I've been in, I would probably be like a politician, which would be the worst possible thing for someone with a brain like mine. Um, But I appreciate my little failures because it made me this like weird art bitch. Um, But yeah, so my, yeah, I think that there's, there's so many ways that art has provided and allowed for me to, I guess, self-determine in the world. Like 
I, you know, had my first internship with Thelma Golden in Thelma Golden's office at the Studio Museum in Harlem um, in the summer of 2010. And it was a summer of learning. It was a summer of being completely turned on to a new way of being, um, being in community with just some of the, like the most powerful thinkers. Um, and yeah, just getting like the top blown off. But my real introduction to art actually begins much earlier because my dad's elder sister and his oldest sister, and also my mom's side of the family, um, like all of my family is just very like creative for lack of better phrasing. Um, but you know, my in what way? In the in the way that like my thought, my excuse me, my well, yeah, my dad one is just like such an artsy nigga for lack of better phrasing. Like my dad loves art because also his older siblings love art, you know. And um my dad, my dad's elder sister Donna is an artist and has done integral work in the Nork arts community. Um, and so I grew up in, you know in her orbit and universe, but didn't really know what to call it because it was only leaving home and ending up in white spaces that I realized I was born into a black art space. But for me, it was just like, oh, my like, my aunt makes these beautiful art pieces. And like, that's what she does, you know? And she does this incredible work with the city to make it a more fertile ground for artists, you know, in this longer tradition. But you don't know those things until it's either like really straightly told to you which wasn't my experience or when it's taught to you, right? Um, or being able to go with my 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 dad's eldest sister, um, Deborah, to to see art or like, she'll be like, oh, Lorraine O'Grady was talking about this, blah, blah. And I'm like, what? <laughs> um, or my my mom said her, um, her older brother was a DJ and like, I love music more than I probably love art, but I never, you know, talk about that. But like creativity is such a core tenant in my family as like what it means to be alive. And so it was amazing then to go through these like winding roads, thinking that I had to be like a doctor lawyer or something. And then realizing that I was always meant to do something creative or even like, that's why I love astrology because my entire chart is like, you will work in art and you will probably be a purveyor of art. And I love, I love those things. And I love Chani Nicholas's practice because it is so like, oriented and in some ways messy, but some ways sound around, of course, trauma as an intersection too, in any conversation. And who is this? I'm sorry. Hmm? Who's, who's process? Oh, Chani Nicholas. Chani Nicholas. Talk Mm -hmm. to us about this. Everyone's favorite, like, like she's just out here doing the, you know, the very celebrity level now, which is amazing to see. Um, But I've been following her for years and years because she, I think is, yeah, like alongside all of us doing this work of learning about history and the world. But um, you can be like, oh, this person's a cancer. They're really sensitive. But you can also be like, this is a cancer who didn't have their mother in their life or, this is, you know, like, or grew up in Palestine. Like these things are all a part of the texture of our existences and, you know, our presumed destinies. Um, but I think about those things too, where it's like, yeah, I'm the child of a people who were disenfranchised and enslaved every opportunity possible. My chart also says that I should work in the arts, but the way that I do that is enforced and formed by all of these other amazing things that made the miracle of my existence possible. 
Yeah, but like when you were at the Studio Museum, um, like you had not heard of like Basquiat before mm-hmm. or like Lorna Simpson or like Glenn Ligon. And that like, that kind of like changed your trajectory, right? Like when you went back to school, like uh, I think you like changed your major, uh, mm-hmm. you know, into art history um, and began what became the black, what was your blog on Tumblr? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How did how did this come about, and and why did you create this this Tumblr? Well, I mean, I think for me, it's interesting to hear it because obviously I wrote it in my book. Um, but it's funny because now I'm like thinking, like I'm like talking to you in real time, and I think it's interesting even to talk about family and then talk about the things that I found on my own. Um, but presumably. I mean, I was Rachel when I learned who Basquiat was because I wasn't taught who Basquiat was. Um, and I've seen for so many people how influential an artist Basquiat is, especially for like black folks, like is such an important figure because of his profound excellence, because of the tragedy of, of losing him, right? Um, and everything in between that we will never know or understand. Um, but at the same time, I'm also kind of like, I don't think that that's like the the worst thing too, um, because even that list of artists who I am lucky now to count as friends and peers in some ways also aren't the whole art world, you know, like, or aren't, you know, every possibility. And so for me, that was a journey to my learning and understanding. And to me, those artists really shaped, I guess, yeah, what was like the initial fire um, that has burned long enough to keep me in the art world. You know, like I credit Glenn, I credit Micheline, I credit Lorna, I credit, you know, the, the, you know, of course the curators, Thelma, Lowry Stokes Sims, Naomi Beckwith, Thomas Lacks, who I met and came to learn in those first, that first summer, that first integral summer. Um, but I also am like, the more and more that I travel, the more and more that I, you know, come to know people like you or, you know, like other artists that we share in community is like, that's only the tip of the iceberg. And I think that there's a lot of work that I think we're going to hopefully be able to do over the next decade to continue this tradition of a more comprehensive art history. Um, And so those people were so integral in getting me to a space where I felt like I needed to be an archivist and a recorder in the way that I was doing my project, Black Contemporary Art. Um, But also I think, you know, 10 years later, I'm also just like, wow, there's so much that we all don't know. And I think especially after last summer, seeing the very odd key change in culture um, that there's a lot that we don't know yet. Yeah. And, and it was reading that in your book that showed me how much we were aligned because that was actually, to be honest, the reason we are sitting here right now having this conversation is the very result of what you discovered that summer in the studio museum. It's the same thing that I discovered when I came to New York, uh, moved to Harlem and discovered this entire litany of names um, and works that I had no concept of, zero concept of. And, and I was 
a curious student. Do you know what I mean? Like I was, I was, you know, in the AP classes and like doing extra homework and yet, and still, you know, um, you know, the, the, the channels of distribution and exhibition did not allow for these names to come, you know, into my purview. And I remember it, same thing for me, you know, going to the Student Museum of Harlem, um, you know, encountering Alma Thomas and that work. And I was like, wait, hold up. Who else? Right. And much less that Alma Thomas is like also, you know, displaying, like has a solo exhibition at the Whitney Museum in like 1965. And it's like, that was so long ago. But somehow, why are we, you know, like these types of things like keep me up at night. I'm like, when, and I know now why, but you know, talking about like 2010, I'm like, what the heck? Like what actually, what's good, you know? Like truly what is good? What is good? What is good and worthy of our, you know, awareness or something? Because I, I mean, we're both curious people. We both, you know, went through academic tracks in some, you know, in some sense, and that that was not deemed as good and worthy is wild. It's absolutely insane. And so, you know, this this whole project, the Institute of Black Imagination, this podcast is about, you know, filling in those gaps, like creating that archive to make sure that like your voice isn't lost, you know, 50 years from now, like that this conversation is hap- has happened, it is documented mm-hmm. and it is there for future generations because I had to do so much work and I'm sure it, you, you mentioned it earlier, you have done the work, right? You, you stayed that curious soul. You gave yourself extra homework, like when you would leave the studio museum and you would do that research, you would hear a name, you would research. And, Mm -hmm. you know, not everyone has that chutzpah, right? Not everyone has that level of courage. And to be honest, I don't think it's required of everybody. But well, because no one should have to work as hard. Like that's always been my biggest, like, yeah, I mean, I love you saying that because I, for years have said that, like, I just, I actually think very, very, very real in a really, really real way. I, all my mentees, I don't want any of my mentees to work as hard as I have worked. Do I want them to do their own work? Absolutely. Do I expect rigor every single time? I want you to go to the mat, but there is no fucking reason that you should be learning the same lessons that I've learned in the same way that I learned them. It doesn't make any sense and it doesn't do us any good. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. But you know, you said like, what's good, what's good. And that is such an amazing phrase because, you know, you worked at the Met, um, as the social media manager. Is that correct? Um, and I just did a job at the Met and it was empty. You know, we had the Met to ourselves for two days, like completely empty and something changes in the museum when you are just left with the artifacts. Mm -hmm. And what I saw, what I felt was one, just overpowering whiteness, um, but two, that who decided that this was worth keeping, right? And Mm -hmm. you have this amazing quote in your book actually, 
I'm going to reference the book, by the way. I'm like, I'm just going to. I know, keep, I love it. I, <laughs> <laughs> I worked hard on it. So. Babe, you did. It's welcome. You did. And, and, and also an act of vulnerability, right? Because I think you really put it all there on the line and you really showed your path. So anyone who's listening, the book I'm referring to is Kimberly Drew's um, small novelette, novella um, yeah. called uh, What I Know About the Art World that was published by Penguin Random House, if I'm not mistaken yes, correct this is what i know about art uh, and it's a, it's a it's a young adult book um so it's really like i wrote it specifically i mean i love that you read it and i and i am hearing that got you got things from it but it was really oriented towards um like the 13 to 15 age group um because as you know very well too um to find yourself in the arts you have to be oriented them because so much of opportunity is oriented through an academic lens. And so if you are not given permission or if you're not taking control, you may come to want to work in the art world in a, in a time that could really, really disrupt your life. <laughs> you know, like I talk to people all the time who are like in, you know, they're, you know, at different stages of their life. And they're like, I want to be involved. And I'm like, well, if you want to be involved in the ways that you're describing, you have to have a certain degree. And that's so fucking dark, but it's true. And so what does it mean then to create a book that would be oriented towards that younger audience? Um, that was that was the big sell for me when I was asked to write the book um, by, by my incredible editor, Rachel Saunas at, um, at Penguin Teens. Um, but yes, I love it. And yeah, it was a, like one of the first times I think, speaking of vulnerability, in my career that I was actually able to articulate how hard I have worked because for the longest time, I felt that I had to preach the ease of my work to get other people to understand that they could do it too. And I think having left that frame of thinking has been really liberatory and it has provided me an opportunity for better self-regard um, because I've worked really fucking hard and I'm reaping a lot of the benefits now but that doesn't discount, you know, a decade of really hard, 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 hard work and hard, hard, hard opportunities that I have taken um, and labored with and labored alongside and also felt the weight of, you know, um, but go ahead, read the quote, whatever. I oh, my God. <laughs> okay. Um, but you, it's, you said it's like, what do museums even do? Mm -hmm. Right. I've been working so diligently to get black people into museums that I had never stopped to think about what would happen if we did not want to be there. So what do museums do? Yeah. I mean, I wrote about that because I had um, taken my mom to see, I want to say death and dying, but that is the title of a course I took in college. There was, um, I forget the name of the exhibition at the Whitney, but I took my mom to see an exhibition at the Whitney in like 2013. And my mom is like, I love my mom so much. Like, I just, I just have the best mom, I think. Um, I know in many ways, the best mom for me at least. Um, Cause I do love some of my friends' moms too, shout out to them. Um, but I took my mom and it was an amazing moment because I had um, blues for smoke. I was already working in the arts for some time and it was nice to be able to like, you know, have an opportunity to bring my mom into the work I was doing. And 
I just thought I was going to the museum with my mother who raised me. And so my mom might know certain things and like just realizing how many assumptions I made and having to really check myself was an, an incredible education. Um, and it made me think these things of like, well, my mom has existed on this earth, raised a child through nothing but love, had so many great successes. And she hadn't been to a museum in the, you know, all the years that I had been alive and she was doing just fine. But here I was like, we all have to, you know, have experiences with art. That's the best way to live. And culture is so valuable. And yeah, it's just important. I think always to just check in with the work that we're doing and the why and the who's and the how's, um, because it's amazing to be invited to do things, but it's also an invitation. And so that alone is something to just pause at, you know, like there's something that you can make yourself, but when you're invited to, you know, shoot the cover of things or write the essay for things or, um, you know, lead the tour or write the book, whatever, um, it's important to, to ask why, because then you have to do the fucking work and like, do you want to do that work? Or do you think you want to do that work because someone told you that you would be more valuable if you did the work? But what do museums do? Says, I don't know. What do museums do? <laughs> Girl, you worked there. You worked at the, the, you, you worked at, at several prime <laughs> New York institutions on the spectrum. <laughs> you know what I mean? Girl, what do museums do? Tell us. <laughs> I mean, they do a lot of things. I mean, we, you know, we're in this moment of, learning about the fact that like a museum in Philadelphia had the bones of the children murdered in the move bombing in a fucking cardboard box. That's what museums do. But also, you know, museums also have incredible photography programs for teens that change their lives. You know, museums also have incredible programs, um, you know, for people with disabilities or, you know, the elderly who are experiencing dementia and are going to museums for art therapy. Museums do a lot of stuff, um, but I think we have to constantly interrogate our relationship to those things. And as you were saying, like sitting with the quiet is such a privilege in, in those spaces um, because it allows us to be able to better oriented, to orient around what we actually believe, desire and understand about the world. Like that was always my favorite thing about the Met was being going I am not an early person. I wake up early. I wake up at 6 a.m. every day, but I don't like to be anywhere or be for anyone until I'm ready. But I would go to the Met early almost every single morning to have that quiet moment with the collection um, to find the things that I actually liked, to find the things that you know made me curious um, because I don't think that there's an inherent value in anything, but... I can find those things. And I love museums as homes and stewards of those things that you could have those interactions. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting. And even to talk about, you know, the construction of black contemporary art, one of the things I think is the greatest privilege of my career is that I was able to do that work at that time without all of these other voices in my head you know, like I was at, I was in college. I was not in New York. I was not 
a part of the mainstream art world. I was just picking things that I liked and putting it on my blog. And through incredible grace from others, I was able to elevate that platform into what it is now. But I could do so much of that work, very thankfully, before people told me I shouldn't or couldn't. And so that to me, I think is really something that like, especially like the younger generation just will never have. It's like, it's all compounded now, you know, like it's amazing that there's this hyper visibility on us in some ways, but it also is like an invitation for scrutiny and violence. And so how do we then survive those things um, and make deadlines, make art and build culture? It's a tall order. How do we, how have you? I don't know. <laughs> Girl, I really thought you had the answers. I thought no, you had all the answers. I don't think any of us do. Do you? I don't think any I have, of us do. I have, I have 20 good answers. Don't, don't do me. <laughs> Talk about I have 20 answers. I do, but like. Abolish it. Okay. So like, so then, you know, what does art allow for? Why art and what does art allow for? I don't know. I could ask you the same question. Yeah, I mean, but it is, it has, it has been your raison d'etre for quite a while. And mm-hmm. there must be something about. But it's not art. I mean, the what thing is, is it? it's not, it's, it's community. It's where we started. Ah, it's the people. It's the people. You know, because the last time I saw you, I think was in, was actually almost exactly two years ago. <gasps> it was at Freeze. <gasps> yes, 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 yes. And it was me, you, Dawood. Tyler. I want to say Turquoise and Tyler. And that's what I, I mean, that's what I do it for is like the people that we could like stand next to Dawood who taught Carrie, you know, like those things to me are so much more valuable than the objects. Objects are just the story. The objects are things that will survive us and will be interpreted. Um, but I do it because this is my, at this point, especially I'm like, this is like, we're family and not, you know, like, I don't believe in like coworker family bullshit. Um, but really like the folks that we find, like, I'm not here for my health. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's 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 interesting, Kimberly. I'm so grateful to be having this conversation with you because, um, you know, I feel like we've never really had that like sit down, um, you know, in depth convo. But the more you speak, the more I realize why we still continue to stay in each other's orbit. Because for me, even even when I was doing theater, you know, it was always about the people. You know, it was always about the people first. And, you know, even in, in photography and, you know, in fashion, um, something that I really discovered is like the photograph, like the things that are created, even like the magazine cover, whatever, those are just remnants. Those are just remnants of the interaction. You know, mm-hmm. those those are the things that remain that said that say that these two people were were holding space together. You know, and maybe that's the value. You know, mm-hmm. whatever that story is for someone else. But what mm-hmm. I'm really after is the interaction, is like mm-hmm. the relationship, is the conversation. Like that is, that's the expansion 
right? Mm-hmm. When when we can be um, you know in community and 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 grow and and compound and develop a vocabulary around our shared lived experiences that you can drop. Um, not only words, but like modalities into my spirit that like unlock uh, a new version of myself. Like, babe, I'm telling you, I'm walking away different because you gave me permission to be messy in my process, right? Um, Like that, I mean, it just completely unlocked so much. And And that is the benefit. And that's something that I speak a lot about here on the podcast is the importance of relationships and the importance of, you know, community and really, you know, the importance of love and that love really starting um, not only at home, but like at home in yourself, you know, the, the same grace that we should extend to others um, is the very grace that we have to also extend to ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um and speaking of extending grace to ourselves, you said you wake up at like 6 a.m. and you don't you don't present yourself until you're ready to be absorbed. Um, what is your morning routine like? Do you have one? No, I don't. Well, I what does a morning don't. typical Kimberly Drew morning look like? Uh, I mean, it's waking up. I'm a coffee person. Mm-hmm. Um, but you live in Brooklyn, right? I do. That's weird. I do live in- okay. Why? Are I you in Harlem? I'm in Harlem, but all the Brooklyn people always drink tea, and I'm like, that's why I don't come to Brooklyn. Oh, no, no, no. I've, I've been drinking coffee since I was 11 years old. Perfect. Um, <laughs> I, I just became a tea person, though, funnily. Um, I love it. I I will have to say, like, so my so my friend that I'm in Joshua Tree with, Marissa, does this incredible... Um, she has a company called Augustine Herbals and I drink her teas. And so it's very different. It's not like I go to the store and get tea. I like my best friend makes tea and I drink her tea. So it's very specific. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't really, I'm not one of those people. I was also like, I think it's interesting um, on the note of like morning routines. Cause there's, it doesn't happen as much anymore, but there were so many like Forbes articles in like the early aughts about like CEOs and how CEOs lived. Um, and how like you wake up and you like go surfing or you go biking or some shit. And for the longest, I like wanted to subscribe to those kinds of things because I was oriented towards like this, you know, idea of success. And I think for me, my greatest success at this stage of my life is that my mornings are mine, you know, like I don't have to go anywhere. Um, and so for me, it's like some morning, like this morning I woke up and I read, um, tomorrow morning, I don't know. But I'm thankful that I get another one. Shout out to that. <laughs> Amen. And how does like how does your queerness inform your practice? How does I mean I think it's I think it's yeah it's always evolving. But I think for me right now I'm enjoying queerness as like a, a modus more than like an identity. Um I found a lot of grace in being able to especially talk to like other black non-binary people at this stage because a lot more I think there's a lot more visibility in conversations around the complications of race and gender um I did a conversation the other day with um Jenea Future Khan for GQ actually 
And it was just so nice to meet like a complete stranger um, and then be able to just jump right into these constructions of self um, around the ways that we we are perceived or read or understood in the world um, in a way that I feel like those two intersections of identity just like it just was a very electric experience. Um, like I know that they box and in the piece I wrote about boxing and um, specific act of like, you know, when, or do you ever watch boxing? No. You should. Like, one, like but, the actual sport? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. I, I didn't know if I it was a show on Netflix. No, 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 no. <laughs> like the actual sport. Um, I love boxing historically because of figures like Joe Lewis or Muhammad Ali or Tatiana Ali. Um, but I love boxing really specifically because it is an act of, you know, physical agility and strength and endurance, right? Like it's like all as many rounds as you can survive. But one of the key strategies in boxing is called clinching. And it's when the two opponents hug each other. Um, and some way, and sometimes clinching can be because of exhaustion, right? So it slows down the match. Um, and in, in other instances, it is really like a driving force forward as like a strategical pivot, right? So it's like you are taking control of time or you are to taking control of force. Um, and it felt like a moment of clinching. And I feel like that when I talk to other, especially black folks, when we come together, we are in this world that like requires a certain level of fight and endurance and resilience. But then I think about the clinching that we do with each other um, as this like kind of pace setting mechanism. Um, and that to me is always really interesting in, 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 in thinking about like my conceptualizations of queerness, but I always think about the moments of pause and rest and restoration and family, like we we're talking about, um, because I find those things to just be really like tender and delicious. That is amazing. And I want to be respectful of your time. So this, we're going to have to definitely have like a part two somewhere in the future. And yeah, I, I was going to say, I, it's like, we just I, need to hang I know, out at like, this point. <laughs> And in our, our, our black future, um, yeah. we need to have a, like a part two. Um, yeah. But I want to first take a moment to acknowledge you for that tireless work, you know, for showing up. You know, I know that it is not easy. I know that there is a level of um, intense emotional labor that goes many times unnoticed, uh, unrecognized, and definitely unseen, um, that it requires to constantly show up for others. Um, But I so appreciate the ways in which you use your own level of courage um, and tenacity to not only become more of yourself, but unlock doors and spaces that give others the opportunity to do the same. And... I have been able to watch you, you know, shift, you know, and pivot and grow, even if virtually, um, for quite a while. And it is uh, a way in moving through the world that I admire and appreciate so much. And I'm sure I'm not the only person who feels that way. So, so just thank you. Thank you so much. Um, my last question is what, is the world you imagine for the future? Mm. Um, hmm. I mean, it's interesting because I think if I'm, I, I think it's, it's a trick question in some ways because like, 
it is in my imagination informed by the truth or my imagination informed by like what I hope, you know, um, which I, which I realize is your question, but like, of course my like very literal brain is like, well, at the rate we're going. Um, <laughs> um, but it is my hope that, um, I think the thing that really, really feels like most pertinent to me right now is like that we all really embrace our rage. Um, and that we all also really like acknowledge that through that embracing of rage, that there is a potential for violence in everything that we do. And I am just, it's so funny. Like there's all this like, you know, lingo right now about like choosing violence. You know, like people say like people get on Twitter and like choose violence every day. And I'm just kind of like, yeah, you know, like, yeah. Like what, like that's actually kind of a generative, like the kids are onto something because embedded in these opportunities to interact with each other, there is always a potential for violence. There's always a potential for misunderstanding. There's always a potential um, for growth. And I mean, even thinking about like planting seeds, it's like in some ways you're doing a small violence to the dirt to lay the seed that then grows to be the thing. Those things are so fascinating to me. Um, And so my imagination is really inspired by, you know, potentials for violence and also potentials for restoration and care and everything that comes along with the ecosystem of violence, mutual aid. Um, those types of things are really a driving and motivating force for me right now. Amazing. Well, Kim, have a beautiful and restful time out in the Joshua tree. Um, and also before we go, where can people connect with you? You have a book that just came out in December, Black Futures. Where can people find it? Social handles, websites, give us give us all of it. Yeah, um, absolutely support Black Futures um, if it's within your means. Mine comes on um, Monday. I was like, oh, I got it real quick. Yes. And it's available at many, many libraries. Shout out to the librarians um, who are making sure that their libraries have our book. Um, and then, yeah, I would encourage, you know, anyone who wants to get it to get it from a Black-owned bookstore. There are many that have their shop set up through bookshop.org is a great place as a resource. Um, and then Google me. I mean, the work is the work. <laughs> yes. And your social handle is Museum Mammy on Instagram mm-hmm. and on yeah. Twitter as well. And on Twitter. All right, babe, (laughs) go get your food. Have a beautiful one. Love you so much. Ciao. Thank you all so much for listening today. Kimberly, as you can see, knows her stuff and knows herself. It's the confidence for me. Let us know what spoke to you over on Instagram and Twitter at Black Imagination. And, you know, maybe share with one or two friends that you think would really love this combo. You know, art isn't just about the hollowed halls of institutions, but it's in the way we live, the way we address each other, and allows for a perceptivity that language can't always address. Stay curious and keep dreaming.